Welcome to Made for Profit, a podcast where we talk business in the shop and help you monetize as a maker. Each week we cover business topics to help you grow your full-time business or your side hustle. We'll also bring you interviews from a variety of people winning in their space to share valuable business insights and life lessons. I'm Brad Rodriguez, a full-time content creator running FixThisBuildThat.com, and my co-host John Malecki runs a full-time furniture company and his content site, JohnMalecki.com. We've been growing our successful businesses online, and we want to bring you into the conversation and help you grow along with us. Welcome to episode 98. Our interview today is with a full-fledged business owner who also happens to be a blogger. Scott Seidler runs Austin Historical, where he and his team restore and preserve old buildings. He started out fixing up his old home, and he fell in love with historic preservation. And when he realized there was a gap in the market, he started doing work for others and eventually grew it into a local business. He also started documenting his passion projects and sharing them online on a personal site, The Craftsman Blog. And today he walks us through the journey of being a business owner and a content creator on the side. Yeah, Scott is an absolute beast when it comes to all things business, not only online, but in the real world as well. With a 19,000 square foot facility and 24 employees, His mainstay brick-and-mortar Austin Historical is absolutely crushing it. The Craftsman blog as a supplemental brand is not something to turn your nose at either. With over 300,000 monthly page views, his beautiful website is super impressive and packed with information on restoring historical homes and buildings. Scott's an absolute monster, and this conversation was awesome. He dropped some serious knowledge bombs on us, but before we get into those, we do want to thank a new member on the MFP Patron Tribe this week. We had Matt Robertson. Matt, thank you so much for joining. If you want to join the Patron Squad over there, you can go to patreon.com forward slash made for profit and help support the show and get some great rewards like the after show, which we do at the end of every episode. But without further ado, here's our interview with Scott Seidler. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome back. We are excited to have uh, one of our friends on the show. We have Scott Seidler from the Craftsman blog and actually from also Austin Historical, which we'll get into. Scott, welcome to Made for Profit. Hey, it's really good to be here, guys. Absolutely, man. We're, we're excited to have you on the show. We, uh, John and I were both at uh, Workbench. Kind of, actually, Scott, we met uh, two years ago at Haven Conference and then uh, got yeah. a chance to hook up again this year at, at WorkbenchCon. And John and I were at your SEO class and we were feverishly writing. John's pen busted. Like, you know, we're no, literally <laughs> exploded. Like Brad, Brad's looking at me. I'm covered in blue. I'm like, He's why like, do I have ink on my paper? I'm like, but, uh, so many, so many so, good points, dude. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we'll touch a little bit on that, but actually we're, we're really excited to talk to you about, uh, you know, the, the crafts and blog and your, your other business is so kind of a, a unique situation. But, uh, before we dive into it, why don't you just, Give our audience a little brief overview of of who you are and and what your business is. Yeah, so um, I uh, I'm the president of a historic restoration company, Austin Historical. We got uh, 24 employees down here in Orlando, Florida, and basically we do a large majority of what we do is restoring historic windows. Uh, believe it or not, so it really seems like a small niche, and it is, but uh, there's enough around the country and. We pull out steel and wood windows from all over the country, different places, sometimes a lot of residential, some commercial stuff, hotels, big mills and things like that. And we pull them back here to our uh, shop. We have a 19,000 square foot shop, which is, 
insane that there's that actually that much space in here right now um, and a little scary. But uh, we pull them back here, restore them and go put them back in the buildings where they belong. Um, and then we also do some started as like a residential historic contractor. So I just love old houses, got into it, was good at working with my hands. Um, and we started out just small residentially, me and a couple guys just fixing up old plaster walls, old windows, floors, general contracting. So I'm a, I'm a licensed contractor here in Florida, so I can do whatever in the state of Florida. But outside of that, we do windows mainly. And then my other business is the Craftsman blog. So it's the kind of the content side of my business. So I realized I got all this awesome stuff coming through here and this great work. And I was like, I need to provide some content for people to learn how to do the same kind of stuff that we're doing. And uh, that's where that kind of that business kind of took off from. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. I actually found myself, I think it was actually even last night, somehow I got like an Instagram down this like uh, this wormhole of like historical uh, houses, house, you know, pages. Yeah. And dude, it's like I, I can hear you on the love for the old houses because the details in some of those old houses are just amazing. And and I know like I guess in Florida, it's probably is it is it predominant down there? I mean, I, I don't think of like old houses in Florida. I think more of like, you know, the East Coast and, and, right. uh, you know, like New Midwest. England areas. Right, and stuff. right, right. Is There's, that so? Did you start down in Florida doing the old house restoration or were you elsewhere before you moved down to Florida? No, I, I started down here. I was actually down here. Um, my, my background, I have a degree in musical theater, which comes in super handy. Oh, um, but I, uh, I was a, uh, I was working at uh, Disney World as a performer. And I would train the stunt performers who would do the wire work, which was really fun. And then I kind of got a little bit bored and they were like, you know, we love what you're doing here. You're kind of topped out. There's nothing else we want you to really do with the company, but just keep doing this for like the next 30 years. And I was like, uh, yeah, that's, that's not going to fly. I, I always want to be learning and doing new things. So I started looking around and there's a lot of old houses here. I mean, you've got St. Augustine's maybe two hours from right, me. It's the oldest right. city in the country. And all these cities, Jacksonville, Orlando, Miami, there, I mean, there's not stuff from the 17 and 1800s much, but most of the cities here, you're starting in the late 1800s and up. And there was a big Florida land boom in the 20s. So there's just a ton of like bungalows and uh, before that, some Victorians and stuff like that to work on. But I don't get the variety that some of the other people up in New England who they're like, hey, this house was built in 1580 when uh, Columbus took his ship apart. And, you know, like they've got all these awesome stories and I've just got, this is just a 1920s yeah. bungalow and it looks nice. Yeah, this is the stern of the Santa Maria. Uh, right. Is our mantle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually, uh, I'm, I was after chatting at WorkbenchCon, I, I called uh, Scott up a couple of weeks ago, Brad, and we were chatting because I've got some fireplaces in my house. And, and my house is about 100 years old. Um, and it's not even one of the, like the cool hundred year old houses. It's just like this <laughs> old house period. Nothing cool about it, but, um, it's, it's incredible. The wealth of knowledge you're able to kind of, uh, accumulate doing something as vast as like old home restoration. Right. And, um, and, and I think it's incredible that you decided to try and, and while you're doing it successfully, but balance that, uh, content business as well as a physical business. Cause it's a, it's a, it is hard, man. Like I've, I've tried to do both. And, and as far as doing like custom uh, furniture work and then teaching people how to make custom furniture, essentially, as far as producing content. And, you know, how, how does that balance look for you? Because I know a lot of our listeners are kind of in that mix right now, trying to figure out how to run a real business um, as well as supplement it with supplement it with some content. Excuse me. How does that balance look for you right now? Man, it's it, it's so hard because, as you guys know, you're like, OK, this task would take me. 30 minutes to do. And now I'm going to videotape it. Okay. 
took me four hours because I wanted this shot and this mm -hmm. shot. No, I screwed it up. Oh, I forgot to freaking cut. I, I forgot to record when I was doing that part. Now I got to go find another one and do it just the same way or whatever. So it really slows your workflow down. But um, really for, for me, I, I, it felt like it was just necessary for me because I went, okay, I can serve all the people when I started in central Florida, but then there's a ton of people. And I, my passion was, I was like, I got tired of these windows being thrown out and gotten mm -hmm. rid of. And so I was like, how can I reach them? Well, I can show them how to do a lot of this stuff themselves because a lot of this is really DIY friendly. It just takes a ton of time. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to dedicate one day a week where I'm going to like be taking pictures during the week and, you know, doing some video here and there. But mostly on we work Monday through Thursday for my company. We do four 10 hour days for everybody. And on Friday, I get to come in the office and just play in the shop. All the tools. There's no carpenters in the woodworking shop. There's nobody doing anything. It's just me to come in and I decided those 10 hours, I'm going to create content, upgrade the blog, do whatever I need to do on there. And it's, it gets harder and harder as I try and improve it and grow more, but I needed to kind of batch process stuff because I was getting too inconsistent out in the field, trying to shoot off an Instagram post when I'm like up on scaffolding. I was like, this is not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you're doing, I love the idea of the, of the four 10 hour days, by the way, I, I bet that I'm sure uh, your employees really enjoy that and having the time. Oh, they love it. I've, I've gotten a lot of employees here. Like I, the reason I came to work here is because I got three day weekends. I was like, right. Great. Cause yeah. I can't afford health insurance for everybody yet, but I can give you three days off. On <laughs> right. And uh, that's, you know, something that uh, when you look at retention and, and, you know, happiness in the workplace and people being excited yeah. to come in, like, Having that extra day of rest, I mean, I think that's a huge, I think that's something that, you know, just like, the, it's funny how you take things uh, when you have a conversation with people. Like, I see that in, in being in the workforce for, in corporate America for so long, and like, you're, you know, it's it's like a grind a lot of times, and they've tried little things like that, but it's like little things like that, when you start having employees, like, those are the things that, because uh, as a business owner, like, we're fully invested, right? It's like, you know, spending 70 hours on our business a week is no big deal for us. Right. But that's not how the other people see it. <laughs> they no, know they're not interested they're in doing not that 70 excited hours. Yeah. about, uh, you know, about so putting weird, in the time right? to grow your business. But uh, <laughs> something as as uh, I mean, that's big. That's not a small thing. Right. To have to, that structure and make sure that uh, that all works. But that is just brilliant because, uh, you know, again, that, that it just takes away a barrier. And I'm sure that they talk about it to their friends that they're like, oh, where do you work? Oh, yeah, dude, I work at Austin Historical. You're like, dude, it is awesome. I get like every Friday off like that's. Right. Like I would imagine that's how most of them lead. Like, yeah, dude, I get three day weekends like every week. And I've gotten uh, referrals from other employees who are like, my friend is so sick of it. They, they want to do like they want to have do their own thing on the side. And with this, they're like, I got three days or my wife is like, you need to be home on Saturday and Sunday. Like, OK, Friday, I can go do my thing. I can start my own business. And some of these people have done that started side businesses on Fridays that they can do. So and then for us, it was a win win. I mean, it saves me a ton of money. It's one less day of loading up the truck. One last day of unloading the truck, lunch breaks, bathroom breaks, smoke breaks for the smokers who take like 15 breaks in a day. And you're like, hey, that's like an hour of time that you're taking out of your day. That's just one less day of doing all that. So it's a it's a win for both sides. Yeah, that's fantastic. So so walk us through like, you know, so you, you started off going, uh, you know, you started off with doing contracting and restoration with mm -hmm. some buddies. You said like, you know, what did that look like? You know, because that's like a 19,000 square foot warehouse and, and 19 employees. Uh, I mean, that that's a huge operation. Like, how did you get from there to the, here to there? And, uh, you know, when did all that start and what did it look like? 
So I started it the uh, end of 2010. It was a recession, so it was a good time to start a business, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, I just kind of pimped myself out as a historic handyman. I, I, my wife and I had bought an old house downtown, and I started fixing up. My grandfather was a painter. My dad was a contractor uh, for a time. And I was like, I, I was always pretty handy and started fixing it up. And I was like trying to find some people to do some of the more major parts that I couldn't handle. And they were all like, yeah, we'll tear out the plaster. We'll do drywall and we'll get rid of these windows, put some vinyl, uh, double, you know, double pane windows. I was like, no, no, no. I want to save the old stuff. I couldn't find anybody to do it. So I just started doing it on my own house. Some of the neighbors were like, we couldn't find anybody. Would you help us? I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. And then it just kind of went from there, you know, neighbors and then friends of neighbors and then people who I didn't know or whatever. So just printed up some business cards, slapped a magnet on my truck and was like, yeah, I'm a historic handyman. I know what I'm doing. But I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, I knew that, you know, it was fake it till you make it. It was like, I knew that I would make it right. And I knew, thank God for YouTube and the internet that I could watch some people who had gone before me and be like, okay, what are you doing? And I, I had to find some stuff from people. Historic restoration, they're not usually people my age. It's a lot, or, or at least when I started, it was like, I've been doing this for 40 years and I've written a book on it and it is dry and it is boring. And I'm reading these books and I'm like, oh dear Lord, help me. Like somebody needs to put this information in a way that makes sense and is like easy to digest. So I just went out there and started it. got my first hire. I was still working full-time at Disney and I hired my first two people and I was like, okay, you guys are going to work. I'd start in the morning and be like, okay, we're good. Good. Okay. I'm going to go to work. I'll be back like three o'clock or four o'clock and check and make sure we're okay. And it took, I did that for like two years before I think we had three or four people. And then I was like, that's it. My first son was born. I quit my job at Disney the same month, which was insane. And then I, uh, I needed to have the insurance for him to be born. And then I quit. And then, uh, we, uh, yeah, that gets a little expensive. So then I just jumped in full time and started picking up whatever jobs we could and hiring people. And the, we had some inflection points. Like we got to a commercial job to restore the, uh, train station here in town. And that was a big boon for us. It was like a $200,000 contract. We'd never done anything that size, hired four or five more people. We we're like 10, 11 people. And it felt crazy. We're in about a thousand square feet, just crammed in there trying to do all this stuff. And then the years, it's just been like, like, uh, leaps and plateaus with, we've got a big job, hire a bunch of people, and then look for another big job that can take us to the next level. So, uh, it's been in, in fits and spurts as we've grown. Yeah, I feel like that's most small business, you know, is you're you're just putting your head down, kind of on the grindstone, uh, crushing it out. And then by means of just putting in the work, those big jobs tend to either fall in your lap or, you know, certain certain things you put in place six to 12 months in the past might, you know, trickle into a larger job. And and uh, I know I've been through some stuff like that as well. And, and I think it goes back to being consistent in understanding that um, it is peaks and valleys, right? It's not always oh, yeah. it's feast or famine and <laughs> and you got to prepare oh. your prepare yourself for it. So like um, I, I when you when you're going through that kind of stuff, you know, what sort of um, I guess like preparation or planning do you have in workflow that sets you up in order to either um, bring on part time work or you know, kind of, uh, I guess, let some people go when, when things are slower, like, uh, how much focus, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is how much focus and emphasis did you put on creating processes, um, at that, at that time? Cause I know that that's a, uh, uh, something that for a lot of our listeners and for me especially was, um, something I put in the, you know, on the back burner 
when I came to hiring. I didn't have the right processes and it just ended up being me having to have my hand in absolutely everything. Um, how, right. how important is that to, to your business? I mean, it was, it was, it was huge, especially when we got that train station job, like I was bidding this job knowing one, I know what we, we know what to do. This team knew what we should be doing. We knew how to do the work, but we clearly did not have enough people. And I'm bidding this job going, yeah, if we get it, we'll just have to get enough people and try and train them on the fly. So I started writing down uh, my first book. It wasn't my first, but I put together a a book called Old Windows Made Easy. And it basically was our like SOPs on how we restore windows. Mm. So it was like I I kind of put them together as SOPs and then I worked on them and made them a little bit more DI, a little bit more reader friendly for homeowners and stuff so that they could do it. But I was like from the beginning trying to document all this stuff. I needed to have a we use this kind of glazing putty on windows and this kind of primer, and this is how we put the primer on. And this is how you do this. So I was documenting it from the beginning. Cause my whole goal with this was, I don't want to build a job for me. I want to build a business that can survive without me. And I yep. want to be able to take two weeks off and come back and look, Hey, there's, you know, we just completed another $50,000 worth of work and everything went okay. You know, I mean, maybe one wheel came off and there's a problem here or there, but mostly I've been working on putting system, build a system, put somebody in there to run that system and then step out and build the next system for it. So that's the only way that we've gotten here. Cause once I got past about 10 or 12 people, I could not do everything anymore. Like I couldn't Mm -hmm. follow up on what was going on. It was just, I was totally overwhelmed. And so now at 24, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but I really could disappear other than, you know, some of my leadership team calling and going, what should we do? This is a unique situation we've never encountered in nine years of business. What should we do here? That's usually what I spend more of my time with. And then networking and talking to other people and trying to drum up business for, you know, collaborations between companies and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that, you know, the definition of entrepreneurship is something along the lines of uh, creating systems in, in which a business can run on its own. And and I, I love how that's always been an emphasis of yours. I know that um, even for me and Brad, uh, even where we are right now, it's something that's difficult uh, when it comes to hiring or outsourcing um, and a lot of small business, and, and I know a lot of our listeners struggle with that too. Um, and, and you and I have bounced, you know, a couple of pieces of literature and books and what uh, back and forth. And and I've talked about clockwork uh, recently on the podcast, and I know mm-hmm. on my Instagram feed and stuff. But that's exactly what all of these high level entrepreneurs talk about: is that if you can't take time away from your business and have it still making you money, you're you're essentially not an entrepreneur. You don't own a business. Like you're just working you, and you own a job. Yeah. And, and so, right. um, I love that you from the get go were documenting processes. You were creating opportunities to hire. Um, so when you got into it, you know, how important did you, or, well, I guess, how did you weigh the value of, let's say shop work versus, um, office work? Because that's kind of a, it's a dichotomy that I understand in business now being that I'm in the office way more than I'd like to be. And, it used to be vice versa, but I know a lot of us are immediately looking to hire in the shop, especially when you're doing custom stuff like like you are. Right. Um, and, and so when did you see that the balance was no longer like, oh, I need a hand, you know, physically in the, in the shop. I, I need to get an office assistant or I need to get an accountant or anything like that. It was it was pretty early on because I suck at bookkeeping. Um, and I was like, somebody needs to do these books because I'm probably doing them wrong. And I was like, after, after they came in, it was, it was confirmed that yes, I was indeed doing them wrong. <laughs> and so I, we, I think when we had maybe four or five people, I hired a office manager, 
um, and she worked from home, maybe 20 hours a week. I was like, I need somebody to answer the phone because I'm, I climb up a ladder and the phone rings and then I climb back down, talk for 20 minutes. And then I climb back up the ladder and the phone rings again. I was like, I was, my productivity was down to nothing because the phone would keep ringing. And it was usually like some marketing call or some, please advertise at my golf course, uh, for our, these little brochures we give to all the members. And I'm like, I get that call probably five times a week. It's ridiculous. Yes. Um, and so now I was like, I need to stop answering the phone and I need to not do the books anymore. And I need somebody to schedule my estimates. Mm. I need you to pre-qualify these people. See if they're, you know, somebody who calls with a 1990s house, that's not us. If you call and your house is before the 1960s, then okay, cool. What do you need? You know, I need this, you know, I had a little bit of training to do to figure out how I needed to have her do that work. But working from home, it was super easy. It was very inexpensive because she just wanted a little bit of extra income. And eventually it turned into a full-time job where she was my office manager running everything in this business from an administrative standpoint for a couple of years, like three years or so. Um, So it was, I, that was a, that was a huge step for me to be like, there's office work that needs to be done. And I don't have an office yet. My office was my, it was a room in my house. And so I have no place for you to work. So let's do it this way. And it worked out for both best for both of us. Yeah. I've heard tons of examples of people that have found, you know, situations like that. And it's way more common than you think to, to, to know someone that's looking for an extra couple bucks. They might work from home or they have some experience and they're looking to just, you know, kind of uh, scale back from full time. And, and then they're willing to, willing to help learn. And and I think that one vastly important aspect of hiring help like that is that you're creating uh, systems and, and uh, processes together, right? Like you're, oh, yeah. it's, it's a working relationship. And I think that that one of the biggest um, apprehensions, a lot of us small business owners have to hiring office assistants is that we don't have a perfect process. And so we're all scared to go and hire someone because it's like, no. You know, how, how am I going to teach someone that I show up at 630 in the morning and just get pummel <laughs> through emails for three and a half hours and then draw on whenever I get a free, you know, like, and it doesn't have to be like that, right? You can, you can go through this together. So it's, it's kind of like a journey in both of your expertise is not. Yeah, we, we've total, I've, we've created a culture here and it started with, uh, Amber, who was that first hire where I said, here's how I do this. Here's how I do the books. Here's how I do the call, the answer, the phone. Here's how I deal with qualifying the leads. This is a bad process, but here's the base. <laughs> here's your foundation. Please take it now and make it, this will, you'll limp by on this. Now take it and make it awesome. And so everybody, every position that I've hired, I've been like, here's how I've been doing it. This is not my, I'm not uniquely gifted at this, but this is at least what gets us, keeps us from drowning and the company from falling apart. So take it. And now your job is to not just do my system, but to vastly improve the system because this is in your field of expertise. You're the organized person. You are, you have bookkeeping experience and it's been really helpful, but there's a, there's that transition time where I'm like, it's all yours. I'm, you know, I'm wiping my hands of this project. This is yours to deal with. And then they come and they're like, I'm thinking about doing this. Is that cool? Yes. Cool. Uh, Dave Ramsey has a cool thing where he says, He's like when some when they're training somebody to like kind of lead an area, it'd be like, first, I I want you to I'll tell you what to do. And then after that, I want you to come in and say, here's the problem. What should I do? And I'll try and answer it. And then from there, he goes, I want you to come in with the problem and say, here's two or three potential fixes and I'll help you decide which one. Then I want you to come in and say, here was the problem. Here's how I fixed it. Cool. And then after that, he's like, once you get that kind of it takes a long time. But once you get to that point, you're like we're cool. I, I, you know, I don't have to check on you all the time because 
you've been consistently making decisions and telling me, telling me what you've done. And I've approved of all of it. You understand what my head is thinking, how I work. So people can just take it and it's theirs then, but you have to let them own it. That's the tough thing is like, you really have to give it up. If you hold on to it and try and meddle in what they're doing, like I still get in trouble from my, um, my uh, production manager, my director of ops, he will come to me all the time. He's like, please stop going out in the shop and telling them what to do. I'm like, he's like, I just told them what to do. You've told me what to do. I've told them that I know what to do and you're messing with my schedule. So get your nose out of this part of the business. I'm like, yeah. And it's weird. It's, 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 it's kind of, I want to work with my hands, but I don't as much as I used to now, other than Fridays and doing my own projects. But you have to step out of that stuff because there's only so much bandwidth you have. So how, how do you, how do you, how do you go through that? Uh, So two things, one, I heard you talk about and, and say how you hired people with expertise, because I think that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting decision as well, because uh, like John was mentioning, the, the clockwork um, uh, methodology is, um, you know, not necessarily hiring, ex- hiring expertise, but hiring somebody and then teaching them your way so that then that they can do it your way and they don't come with preconceived notions. That was a big issue that I had when I tried to hire a video editor is that I brought somebody who has like been doing video editing for a long time and they came in. It's like, well, this is how I edit. And I looked at it and I was like, hey, what are you doing? I don't even know what you're doing. And, and you know, that's probably the, <laughs> that's probably the correct schooled way to do it. And, and I like your, I, you know, hearing you say, this is the way I do it. And we limped along. That's probably what I'm doing, but I was very comfortable with it. So, you know, did you go through that decision-making process? Like when you were going to hire an, uh, you know, obviously an accountant, uh, that's a pretty easy one to say, like you want somebody with experience, uh, right. but <laughs> As, as far as like, you know, operations manager or anything else, even estimates, uh, were you specifically looking for those folks who had experience so that they could bring expertise to bring you up? Or was it a balance in between? And because that that's something that that I personally really struggling with. And I've seen other people fail, uh, not them fail, but that relationship of hiring somebody else fail because of that whole like somebody else brings their ideas in, but it doesn't mesh with the way you want things done. So can you hit that a little bit and, and, you know, have you had issues with that and what does that look like? I've done it both ways. So one of my early hires was uh, an 18 year old kid and I, that I knew from church was like, I want to hire him and his parents wanted to have a meeting with me before I hired him. They're like, why do you want to hire him for doing historic restoration? He's never, he has no skill set. He's never touched a hammer. And I said, because I want somebody who does not have bad habits, who I can just, make a mini me who I can train to do everything this way. And he won't have an issue and going, well, in my last job, we did it this way. And I want to do that. And that's how I'm going to do it. Even if you tell me to do it that way, boss, man. I'm like, no, he's, he was a good kid. He was like ready to learn. And he's been extremely valuable in my company after all these years, he's been here since towards the beginning. Um, he had to go back to college to get a master's degree and all that stuff and left me, but whatever. (laughs) But he, he learned to do it the way I wanted to do it. And so I was like, cool. I don't have to worry about him. But then the other people, like when I brought in a a ops manager, I was like, I need somebody who is, uh, you know, doesn't, he didn't know historic windows. He didn't know historic restoration, but he knew he had a familiarity with construction, but I brought in somebody who was like extremely organized and methodical and was good with people and organizing. So I kind of hired not so much that you knew how to do what I do as a company. I can teach you on our, on our SOPs and stuff, but I want that that basic skill set and that personality fit where you're like my admin manager, 
she is like in love with spreadsheets. She loves organization. I'm like, that's what I want from an admin manager. I was like, I want people with that skill set. She may not know how my business is organized or she's never worked in construction, but that's okay. She'll figure that part out. But I want that that foundational skill set where they'll slot in and, and thrive in that part. Yeah. Yeah. Who okay. likes spreadsheets? I know. Like, like who is I, 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 I've, I've heard Brad might be fond of them here or there. I, yeah. Send, send I me, dabble. Send me her number. I'm, I'm going to shoot yeah. her a few spreadsheets for review, <laughs> see what she thinks about them. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that idea because, and I think that's where it does land as well, right? Is that it's it, for the specific job that it probably is one or the other, like, you know, account. Yeah. You don't ever, <laughs> I'm never going to bring a lawyer in and be like, you know, this is how I've kind of been reading these contracts. Like, I don't like, <laughs> if you can read them like that, that'd be cool. Like, you know, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, right. You know, make sure that I'm not getting hosed in this contract and that the language is correct and I'm protected should anything ever happen. Um, and I, I think that, uh, that that is, I think it's the more, um, also the more like creative, like you said, and I, whether you're being creative with your hands, like you said, like restoring, I mean, you're doing that work that like there's a certain way you want it done. And then the same thing I think can be said, uh, like for it, it's also interesting. I kind of want to get into the blog thing because with all this work that you've done uh, and you still being the one man show on the craftsman blog, you know, that kind of begs the question of like, well, what, what, what's the deal, Scott? Why are you not, <laughs> why are you not implementing what you're doing and you've done so well on Austin historical to the craftsman blog? Because uh, obviously there, there's a lot of, of untapped value. And, and John and I have been going through this um, of, of how do we grow our content side? But because that is like a digital uh, creative piece, it's like, well, you know, does someone, can that person write in your same voice? Are they going to be doing, you know, if you want somebody to do to write your Instagram post, like that'd be so hard to say, Hey, yeah. I want, I, I want you to write my Instagram post for me just the way that I write them. So I'm giving my audience the same experience. <laughs> But that they, you know, but they, it's seamless and it becomes yeah. more of a business than a than a person. Like what? So how is that applied to to the craftsman uh, blog side? Have you even looked into that, or is that have you just been keeping your focus on on the restoration? I mean, so uh, with the blog, uh, up to like four or so years ago, uh, I really I started that blog in 2011, so not long after my business, and you know I was doing Google AdWords and it didn't generate enough money to do really anything. I enjoyed putting the content out there and it created leads for my business, which was great, but it wasn't making more than a few hundred dollars a month. So I was like, I can't, I couldn't hire anybody if I needed to. Um, and, uh, with the, the joy, I had started getting a lot of traffic, but still not making a lot of money. And with the joy of Haven, that first time I met you and they were like, Hey, there are these things called ad thrive and media vine that you could potentially use. And I was like, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, yeah. <laughs> And so the blog was always this, this side thing that I just kind of did. And then I added that. And when my, I showed my wife, I was like, here's what we made in the first month. She's like, oh, that blog, that was a brilliant idea. And I'm yeah. like, that's, that's the one idea I get credit for in our marriage. She's like, that was because when I started, she's like, why are you doing this? You're just taking extra time. We could be hanging out watching Game of Thrones or something, but we're, you're writing a blog. Why? So now I was like, hey, this is working. This makes money. So I started looking at it just within the last couple of years of going, Okay, I I wasn't just a way to bring people into my company. I can really grow this as its own company. So I about three years ago I carved it off as a separate company because I knew that Austin Historical could run and be there without me. But the blog is me. That's that's mm-hmm. largely I'm the front man of that, and I could never sell that and just replace the picture of me with somebody else. People would be like, "What the heck, dude?" So yeah. that's me on social media. That's me writing all the content. But I started hiring help, like a bookkeeper. Now I started hiring a fulfillment specialist, somebody who 
is here in my Austin historical offices who just ships all the supplies that we sell on the blog and takes care of all the ordering. So I don't have to deal with that anymore and lets me focus on the content more, which is fun. So yeah, I'm looking at that, you know, trying to do the same, the same kind of things I did with the larger company I need to do with the blog. I'm just further behind on it and it doesn't have as many, you know, the revenue is not quite as big as what the larger company is. So it's, I'm just several years behind it, but doing the same thing, trying to create a system, give it to them and go, please fix this system. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like, uh, so essentially, I mean, the blog does supplement the bigger picture, right? Like the the full like concept of the business. You are moving products, like you said, and then yeah. the context of the blog does supplement um, the, I guess, audience that comes from having home restoration projects. Um, and I totally and, and and from my understanding of content creation, this is and this is kind of interesting because Brad and I have this conversation in um, personally all the time. More more me complaining, but. Uh, you know, understanding the market for creating content is a whole different world, right? Than understanding the market for creating consumer products or services. And Mm -hmm. in, in the realm of content creation, you know, we talk about it here on the show, how if you are making custom furniture, for instance, or doing any type of custom good, the audience you want to attract by producing content around it is completely different than an audience that you will attract if you're doing how to type content around it. Right. So how much of the, uh, how many, how, how has, I guess, balancing that sort of dichotomy. That's twice. I've used dichotomy. I know. I'm, re- dude, I'm you're reading going deep on there. Right? I'm, reading, I'm, I'm waiting for the trichotomy. I'm, I'm reading dichotomy of leadership <laughs> from Jocko and, and, and Lake, uh, that's a but, good um, book. but, um, the reason I say it is because what we've noticed with a lot of our Instagram, uh, accounts that we follow and track for our patrons Um, is the question that comes back to us is, you know, Hey, I'm starting to get a lot more woodworkers and furniture makers following me when I'm looking to grow a customer base. Um, you know, do you guys have any input on, on why that's happening or how, you know, how I can supplement that? Um, and, and that's one thing I realized is when I was selling custom furniture, I started producing more of the micro content, more of the how to content, more of the why behind how I was doing things. And I started attracting a lot more individuals like myself not so much buyers. And as I understand, that's that's exactly what the Craftsman blog is for you, is that these guys aren't going these guys and girls aren't going to be buying your service. They're the ones that are going to be reading up on your expertise. Um, how do you kind of balance that? And, and at what point did you realize, like, these are completely different um, and this is how I service one. This is how I service the other. Well, my uh, my niche is a little bit different. I think that the way it has worked for me is people will restoration, like the stuff we do is not terribly complicated. Like uh, if you're building some of the stuff that you build, John, like you have to be a good worker, woodworker to build that. And you can't just be like, Oh, I'll just, I'll wing it. I'll figure it out. I know what a, I know what a sliding dovetail is. Got it. Like <laughs> it takes a little while to dial that stuff in. Yeah. Whereas with mine, it's like, okay, we're scraping paint. Anybody can scrape paint. Anybody can clean glass. Anybody can use some of these. We use a lot of epoxies not to make beautiful river tables, but to like repair wood and old punky rotted wood, we're fixing it with their two part epoxies, mix it together, brush it on. And the wood is healed. You know, it's, it's Mm. salvation in a bottle. So it's, it's not a big deal for them to be able to do the work. So the way it's worked for me to transfer, to kind of convert those people to sales and somewhat is I saw it as the, the people who are buying my products, we'll say window restoration are people who can afford it. It's expensive. You know, our say a window to restore for us is between a thousand and 
$1,600 for one window. Mm. Like that's not going to be somebody who is a DIYer usually. But a lot of those people will be like, you know what? That's expensive. I can't afford that. I'm going to go do it myself. And then they'll use my blog. They'll buy my book. They can't do the $1,200 sale of the window, but they'll spend, uh, you know, 20 bucks on a book. They'll buy some epoxy from me. They'll buy some uh, glazing putty, some tools or whatever, and they'll try it themselves. And then typically what happens, there are the people who are like, I love doing this with my hands. I'm going to do it all the way through. Or they do it and they're like, I finished one window. Holy crap, that was tough. Okay, you know what? You do the rest. And we get so many people who are calling and they're like, I'm in the middle. I tried doing some of these and I realized, hey, I have a full-time job at an office and I don't have time to do all this because it's super labor intensive. But I like working with my hands and I might still do a little on the weekends. And thanks for teaching me. But now it's an easy sale because I was the one who taught them how to do it for free. I didn't charge them to get the content. I charged them for the materials they bought, but the content was all free. And I was the guy who was like, I'm going to show you, I'm going to walk you through this if you decide to go all the way. If not, you can always call me if you get stuck. Yeah. And so I, I was it, the other guy, Scott. I was the other guy that was like, oh, you show me how to do it. I figure it out. My 1905 house that I ripped the glazing out and then like figured out that some of the glazing was like concrete and I couldn't get off yeah. the window. And so I just used clear caulking instead. Is that is that acceptable for uh, uh, windows? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of profit you turn on that sale? You're that, <laughs> You're that guy. I am. I'm having flashbacks of of yeah, these of glazing these windows and and yeah, it. I, I like how you say it because it's actually not as, or maybe that just goes to show you uh, my expertise is that. Uh, you know, you're like, yeah, yeah, anybody can glaze windows. It's like I had the hardest time in the world glazing windows. Uh, but we did have a local little uh, repair shop that was like a, they're actually like a paint and glass store. And I could take okay. the window in and they would redo just the glazing, just redo that the glazing for like 40 bucks. That was a super popular service back in the day. Oh, it's man. It's not around anymore. But Yeah, you know. no, it, it wasn't. It, uh, it, it still is in, in Cincinnati because there's so many old houses in Cincinnati. But uh, uh, that's where I was at when when I had that. But yes, I, I think it's, <laughs> I, I, I can definitely relate but I was that guy that was in the middle. I was like, well, uh, yeah, you, you showed me how to do it. I can't really do it. Uh, I'm in the middle. You, uh, uh, who, what? Uh, yeah. How about just, <laughs> why don't we just silicone caulk the, the inside right. and, and, and we'll be done with that. So when you get, like, when you get, uh, when you get the people who are buying from you, how, how have you seen, or how have you seen, like, uh, how do you know what to, what next to talk about? Like, when I say buying from you, so like the people who who don't want to spend the money, but they're they're thirsting for that knowledge. Like how what was that feedback loop so that you knew what to do? Because I think that's one of the things that uh, a lot of our our folks who are working with their hands, they like, oh, well, what, what do I write about? And, you know, we throw out throw out some things like how to how to service a table and, and redo the finish because furniture is very different. But how did you figure out what people wanted to say? Were they emailing you? You'd be like, hey, I, I looked at your, you know, how to repair a window, but I would love to learn how to fix this radiator or like. Where did you get the the resources for like what you wanted to cover next, or was it just an outcropping of the things you were fixing in the houses? Um, it was it was a little bit of both. Some content around this answer because it's out there. So I have one of the things I have a directory on my website of people who will who do historic restoration and around the country because I got that email probably fifteen a week maybe. So I had just tons of them coming in, and I was like, hold on, let me look up. Okay, who do I know in Cincinnati? Uh, this guy does windows out there. I was like, I'm just going to put them all on here. And if you e if you email me, it's like an email signature now in my Apple mail that I set up, where it's like, I just click that and says, please check out my directory. And there's, I don't know if there's anybody in your town, but they're listed there. So it was trying to create content or resources around that. 
And then for people who I'd go to their homes around here or whatever and do an estimate and they'd be like, ooh, yeah, uh, I can't afford that. I, I wrote like a, I put together like a, a very small book. Uh, 25 pages is I think the minimum book size you can have on create space to do a book. So I made it very small so I could get 25 pages and I just, it was like, it's called Old House Basics. And uh, if you like sign up for my newsletter, you get the ebook version of it for free. But I, when I go on an estimate, I just give it to people. And it's kind of a lot of what I do for sales is really education. Like, why should I, why would I not buy a $300 vinyl window? It's like, well, because it's going to last 10 years and then you're going to buy another one and another one. And you may not be there that long, but it's wasteful and you could restore these. They've already lasted a hundred years. So there was a bunch of information in there about plaster and floors and just to kind of like mm. a, an old house primer to get people to understand. And they maybe they come to the blog or maybe they'd call me later or they'd pass it to another friend who bought an old house. So I felt like I'm just going to give it to the people and give them the information they need. And eventually they'll, hopefully they'll educate themselves. If not, then they're probably not the people that I should be doing business with. Yeah, I love that. Like uh, all the time, Brad and I talk about how using content to justify your expertise is a massive value add to your customer's experience. Um, and I love that you go into a potential customer experience and say, hey, oh, here's a book I wrote on <laughs> some basics. The fact right. that you have a 150 year old home, you know, this is going to help you out at some point. What it does is creates that top of mind presence on anything that happens. And now they're coming to you first before they're going anywhere else to look for that expertise. I think that's that's absolutely brilliant and is a fantastic way to supplement um, your service business with content. Yeah, because that book cost me $5. It was yeah. like $5 to just educate somebody. And the, like you said, the credibility of, oh, you wrote a book. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. A, yeah. And and so a lot of us in custom or custom work or in any type of service are always looking for a means of um, justifying our expertise, right? And typically it comes from a portfolio. Like I'm sure you have some fantastic photographs and videos uh, based on your former restorations. And those are great for you know, before and after I, I know is, uh, has to be huge, um, in, in the oh, restoration yeah. industry and easily, you could probably easily see conversion there when you're able to show a client, but like, look at some, look at a situation in your own business. And I'm talk, talking to the audience now is like where you can take that example. Scott just gave us of how he goes to a client understanding their needs beforehand. And with that, he directly answers, let's say 75% of those needs with the book. And then is able to have the specific conversation around what they're looking for next in uh, in person. You know, that takes a massive weight off of a buyer's remorse or a buyer's sticking points um, when you're able to go in. And and what I realized naturally through uh, Instagram specifically for my business when I was selling more custom work was that. I already created that buffer by having this portfolio with my personality out there and me talking about techniques and me talking about finishes and uh, how I'm doing everything going into a lot of client meetings because I'd walk in and they'd say, hey, I saw so-and-so on Instagram. I loved it, but I'm looking for this. You know, I'm answering a lot of questions beforehand instead of making it cold and uh, your book or that just that interaction with them seems to do the same thing. For all of the small business owners out there, they're looking to sell more custom work. You know, think of a situation where you can do that beforehand and whether it's a pamphlet or whether it's a brochure or some way of saying like, hey, you know, I, I know I'm going to have a lot of you're going to have a lot of questions about built ins. I've created this, you know, top 10 
you know, FAQs kind of thing uh, with photographs, cost you $2 to print it, take it to the client, leave it on site. Uh, boom. Now they can always go back to it as a resource. Like all of those little interactions, that's what makes, I think, great small business uh, happen. And that's why you've been able to scale from yourself to having 24 employees, I think, is is finding those small situations to incorporate uh, content or to incorporate something better for the user experience. I just think that's so brilliant. And like it just got me fired, fired up because, man, is that smart? Like, Brad, like how friggin smart is that? Like to go in with your own book and say, oh, by the way, if, if anything else happens, I'm your guy. But here's you this know, book. Let me I feel like it should be like I feel like it should be like hardback though, like antique bound hardback. You know, like, like a 300 page coffee table. Yeah, book yeah, yeah. The I mean, table. You know, it's historical good, restoration. Yeah. So, <laughs> right, written with a uh, feather quill. Yeah. Yeah. So Scott, well, I everybody wanna... else shows up with like trifolds or thing like things like that, and I was like, what would set us apart was better content presented more attractively. And it was like, if you come in, I, you would see these window companies or contractors come in with just like a little, you know, couple pages of printed out stuff. And I was like, everybody has that. I need something that's different. And I don't, I never kept them. You know, they'd give me the information. I'd scroll mm-hmm. through it and I'd throw it in the trash. It was like a book feels like if you throw away a book, you're like, what's wrong with you? You should, have put, you should put it on a shelf somewhere, yeah, even yeah. if you don't read it. So well, here's, here's a question. At least donate it to Goodwill. The book itself, you know, how, how much specificity towards the, type of client you want uh are you including in there we we get a lot of question actually i comment on it a ton on if you portray yourself in a certain light you will attract the customer that you want more often how much of your book or any of that type of physical content you're giving out there is geared towards you creating that perfect customer for yourself on the back end a, a, you know, a huge, you know yeah, yeah, a huge amount of it. So we have, there's two people that my, that Austin historical serves. One are what we call captive clients, which are people who live in a historic district or uh, like a developer of a historic property that's trying to get the historic tax credit. They may not care about saving historic elements of the building, but they have to because the district requires it. Mm-hmm. Or if they want that million dollar tax credit, they're going to save these historic windows or something. So They don't, they're not, they don't care about anything other than it's a money or a legal issue of, I can't replace it. I'm stuck. I got to go with you. And they're begrudging and they're kind of a pain. The other one are the passionate preservationists, the people who just like, I would never get rid of my windows. I love these things. I'd never put clear caulk on them. This is everything I've ever wanted. And so those are the, like those two models, I need to know who I'm aiming for. So with the book and the content, I'm trying to educate people to turn people like I was at one point transform old homeowners into passionate preservationists Mm. because I don't, there's no transformation necessary other than they just need to know that my company is around and available. If you're a captive client, you just, you need somebody to solve your problem. I solve the problem. Great. If I, and they're usually lowest price, but the passionate preservationists are the ones who are like, if I can create more of those that, and that's what the book and the content tries to do is create more of those that they'll do it with their hands. And they'll be like, this is amazing to get to work with this hundred or 200 year old piece of wood that I, I, this is incredible. Look at the grain. Oh man. You know, once they start seeing it through my eyes, I feel like it's an easier sell later. And it sounds kind of manipulative right now, but it was like, I, I, I see things that I love and I want other, I want to share it with other people. And some people will come around and other people won't. If they don't, that's cool. You can go wherever you want, but I'm the guy to serve you if you are passionate about it. Yeah. So what I, I want to hit on Scott a little bit because we we teased on it at the beginning of how 
uh, we were interacting at, at WorkbenchCon is is SEO without you know getting into the technical aspects of it. Uh, so search engine optimization, and you've just gone through a, a great example of how you make an awesome impression face to face and bringing on new clients. Uh, you did just teach a, a course on search engine optimization and getting in front of people online. How has that translated into your business for Austin Historical? Because I, I think again, that's where you know when when folks are selling their goods and they're trying to get uh, as much as they can get. They're that they're like, well, I don't know. You know, sh- are people really searching for this? Are they, you know, is, is are people searching for custom woodworking Nashville? Like, or, or is the term uh, woodworking? Tennessee or, you know, what are those things like, when did you, where did that come from? Was it just because of the blog? So when you figured out that, Hey, I, I need to get my content in front of people because I'm not going to people's houses and giving them a book when I have the blog, you know, so you obviously figured that out for your blog side. How have you translated that over? Uh, because you are national, obviously you told, you told us, how have you translated that over for Austin historical using Google and using search engine optimization and content to drive people into your business from the internet? So the the blog is kind of the the teaching and I go out and travel and do workshops and stuff too. That's like the tip of the spear. So I was like, that's my foot in the door to be like, I'm not trying to sell anything to you. I'm just trying to teach you. I'm trying to help you understand. And once we get that foot in the door, it goes from there. Our 92% of our referrals come from just three places, Google, um, yard signs, which is just social proof. So, you, you know, yard signs are the real world equivalent of likes and shares, right? And then um, the, and you're saying uh, yard and, signs of work you've already done. We're working on a house. Right, okay. I'm, I'm like, every time we go out there, plunk a yard sign down. And that if it's in a neighborhood that I want or a house that I want to show. So they start showing up all over the place. We put plywood up in the windows and we started spray painting our logo on the plywood to let people know we just got a stencil and put it right up there. Nice. And so it's like okay. really visible on some of these locations. So uh, 92% of leads come from Google, yard signs or referrals. And so it was like, that's huge for me. You know, you get a trickle of next door or different places, Facebook or things like that. But Facebook and Instagram don't really convert for me for Austin historical. Um, but, you know, I, I have that's more of like lifting, you know, peeking behind the curtain for Instagram and getting to know me personally a little bit. That helps helps in the sale, but it doesn't really bring people in. So those, you know, when I go on an estimate, I'm like, how'd you hear about us? So like Google, I'm like, awesome. It's we're doing our thing. Like we're ranking for the right search terms. Or if I'm going out on the wrong types of estimates and they're finding us in Google, that's when we have to kind of tweak it and be like, what are we ranking for? What do you search for? And I'll ask customers that sometimes. I'm like, what'd you put in Google? And you know, when they give me ideas, I'm like, oh, why am I ranking for that? I, okay. I need to go back and look at that. But <laughs> you know, siding repair, um, we do a lot of siding too. So it's like, if you search siding repair in any of the cities we're in, we're listed. So it's like, cool. And towards the top. So that's where I want to be, you know, I want to keep tweaking the blog and the the other, the the Austin Historical website so they show up in Google. Right. And how do you, um, you know, as as a beginner, right, can you give some some tips for if folks are just trying to get there, maybe some resources or websites, like where did you learn how to, how to figure out what Google wants to see and how to structure a post or a website so that it will come up in search? Um, I think like a lot of us, it was trial and error. You're like, that was great content. And it did nothing. You're like, what happened? And then you kind of mess with it a little bit. But I use um, Neil Patel has great information on uh, SEO. He's just he's top of the game. Um, Pat Flynn also and uh, Michael Hyatt were two other people that I have 
uh, gone to. So Pat Flynn is smartpassiveincome.com and michaelhyatt.com. The t- the, between the three of them, there's just a wealth of like platform building, social media, passive income, kind of SEO tweaking stuff. And because it, it, it changes, you know, you read a one-year-old post on SEO and it's maybe only 50% of it still applies today because Google's constantly changing and the rules are changing. All the platforms change. So um, I probably most of mine was from there. And then also working with some consultants. I actually spent some money on some SEO consultants to kind of look at the site and be like, what am I doing wrong? And a lot of it was just simple, like, you know, spend a couple thousand dollars on a consultant, kind of give you a ballpark of where you are. And then if you, then that kind of gives you your foundation and you can keep going from there by keeping up with current trends or following some of those blogs or people who are talking about SEO all the time, like Neil Patel, that's all he really focuses on. So when something changes, I get his blog post and like, oh, okay, I'll just make a little adjustment now. Yeah. So at what point, when was that kind of tipping point that you realized like, wow, I'm getting a lot of attention on Google, but like, man, do I have no grasp of this? Like I should probably invest in it. Cause that's, that's a question we get a ton. Um, and um, I, I've personally been like, well, I can do this myself. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a maker. I'm a DIYer. I can make everything. Myself. <laughs> I can DIY my SEO. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh, I have thought about that. I was like, it should be a, a website. I'll just start called DIY SEO. And it's not, it, it would not be a good idea. Usually um, a lot of I kind of, yeah, <laughs> I kind of lucked into it a little bit with, um, with, with stuff. I, I've kind of looked at it and I, there was all this back maybe five, six years ago. There's a lot of like black hat link building and do this and do that. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and it, 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 I was like, I can get a lot of traffic by doing this. And the people were like, you know, it's not a great idea, but it does work. And I just steered clear of it and focused on going, I'm going to create content that would apply to humans, like would that human beings would think is good. And I t- had faith that Google would get their bots in line and make them actually start thinking more and more every year. And I think they do like humans and they're starting to look at content more, much better than they did, were five or six years ago. I mean, eight years ago when I started it, it was like, dude, you could do anything and you would just be like, boom, instant traffic because the bots were just stupid. But yeah. now they're just brilliant. The white and text they, on the on the white background. <laughs> oh, I, I did that. I did all that stuff to start. I had like paragraphs at the at the beginning that were all hidden and, you know, because it was like just keyword stuffing left and right. Right. And um, and then I was I kind of went away from that and just tried to keep it all white hat. And Google tends to reward that as soon as they can figure out technologically how to do it. So in terms of like getting started with it, I mean, you start with some of those three people that I was talking about. You'll get a lot of good information for like a basis of how to get your blog up and optimized and things like that. And then just follow along. But keep it white hat because any of the tricks that work. Um, like you were talking about it, uh, Brad at uh, Workbench. Are you talking with Instagram? You're like, I found something that's working, and you stuck with it. You're like, it's working, it's working. And then all of a sudden, it stopped working, or it wasn't working as much. You're like, those things, those trends come and go. And I've tried to be like, just steady, steady as she goes, and keep with the stuff that I feel like will constantly work. Right. I yeah. Hit, I hit some of the trends, but I'm not usually. I don't have the time to be like focusing on the trends as much. I'm I'm a little too occupied. Yeah, and I think it's 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 a lot different too in the blog world because uh, you know on a blog on the internet like you hit it right on the head. It's like great content wins, yep. and you make great content for people who are consuming it, not the robots who are consuming it. And there might be different ways, right? Whether you're using a H two or an H three, and and how many words are in your paragraph, and making it easy to read, and all those things. But 
the core behind it is that uh, Google wants to give people what they think is most relevant and most useful. And the signals that they get from that are, you know, page hits and dwell time. So if somebody comes on your blog and they're spending five minutes reading your blog post, Google can see that and they know, oh, wow, like this is a good piece of content because people are digesting it. Very similar to YouTube audience retention, right? So they're going to push more people that, you know, in, in indicators in that. And obviously, uh, you know, bounce rate and all those different things, people linking into you. Uh, so if a lot of people are linking to your post on how to replace, uh, you know, caulking on a window with actual glazing, then they're going to be like, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. Like, this is the resource because so many people are pointing to him. And and uh, we'll have links down to those three because those three, uh, Neil, Michael, and Pat are, are great resources. I know that, you know, as a beginner that people are kind of like, ah, I don't know where to go. But I, I think that it is the more people I talk to, it's like the same thing. Uh, and that's kind of the way that I learned is that you just have to dive into it. Like there's no there's no easy way to do it other than just digesting a lot from these experts in the field uh, and and kind of learning what they have to say. Like you can't just, you know, there's no, there are some cool plugins, but there's not just a plugin where you can hit it and then just be done. You have to understand what you're doing. And and just because you have Yoast doesn't mean that you're going to rank number one in, in the search engine, but it'll help you. So uh, I, I, I definitely appreciate that. I would say that, you know, with with uh, social media, that it's so fleeting that you can hit those trends more and really capitalize on it. But with a blog, it was like my some of my best performing posts are four and five years old. Yeah. And they're just they're still going because it's evergreen out there. The Internet, they're searching for it. And even though Google says, you know, a high bounce rate is not good. OK, right. You want to have people not leave your site right away. I realize what my niche is and people are searching for how to fix that. And then they find the post, they read it. I've got a long there's They stay on my site for a decent amount of time because they find the post, they read it, and then they bounce because they're going to go fix, you know, how to fix a toilet. I'm not going to hang out on your site for an hour if I just needed that information. I'm going to read it, make, do whatever I need to do with it, put it on my phone or if it's on a computer, and I'm going to go fix the stinking toilet. That that bounce rate on these posts that I have that are perform really well in Google that are ranking like in the top four have really high bounce rates because nobody goes anywhere else. That's what they want. They got the information they needed and they move. So even though Google says, you know, a bounce rate, a high bounce rate is not good, they still find, they know that this is the content people want. And they understand too, if when the bounce rate should apply and when it shouldn't. So all those stats, if you're trying to, you'll get lost in them sometimes if you just pay attention to, if you're not, if you're not paying attention to offering up what people really want. Yeah. Love that, man. Love Dude, that. The one thing I took away from, from your class as we're still on that topic is that like, a lot of us that are looking to be better at SEO don't realize the amount of work that goes into being good at SEO, right? And like, I understand you, you're, you from your course and then knowing Brad as a person, it's like, it's not just a dump and run kind of thing. And I want to set that, uh, I want to build that picture for our audience is that if you want to grow anything as far as content on the internet, specifically written content on a blog, you can't just put something out there one time and expect explosion and all this viewership and all that. It's like you've got to constantly be working at it. You touched on um, a lot of the changes that are coming to WordPress. I, I with uh, what the the um, oh the the profile, schema. yeah, the schema. Uh, you know, look at me yeah. over here trying to learn. Um, with the schema, but anyway, the updates coming to the. Uh, the platform itself, as well as you having to update your specific content, like it's work. It is not just a dump and run kind of thing. And I think a lot of us expect it to be like, I know me uh, specifically, like if you put in 
I think I would have a live edge river table or a river table or anything like I pop up and I, and I rank well, and it's only because YouTube feeds Google. But right. if it wasn't like, man, if I would have had the foresight to double down even harder when that was popping off and having supplemental content on a lot of the things revolving around it, like I could have done so much better in that moment uh, to, to, to use my blog to my advantage but I just didn't understand the work that went into it. Even with uh, Brad's advice that I just completely ignored, you know, I, I, I it, you, you don't realize how much work ranking and being, uh, I guess, having authority um, with a blog actually is. So for all of you that think like, hey, you know, I do so and so type of uh, work, I'm just going to start supplementing it on my blog. Like that is a fantastic idea. But just understand that if you want the blog to be something that is worth your time. You've got to feed that beast all the time. And it's got to be something that's always on your mind that you're always thinking, you know, how can you add value to your audience? How can you make sure that it is optimized for uh, using on your phone, on an iPad, on, you know, the website is, do I have bad backlinks, all kinds of stuff. And uh, you really put that into perspective for me when you were teaching your class at WorkbenchCon um, on how much is actually involved with it. And man, you barely, Brad was like, yeah, he's just barely touching the tip of the iceberg here too. Um, so it's incredible to see how much you've been able to grow both. Um, and I just wanted to set that kind of that, that, that landscape for our audience. Cause I know it's easy to get excited about something like this after a conversation that's as inspiring as this one and go, man, I'm going to crush SEO and then go down a rabbit hole, do a couple things, get no, cause that's what happens, right? Is you'll, you'll try a couple things. You'll put a couple posts out there. You'll get a little bit of juice, but you won't see that explosive growth that you want. And then you'll stop doing it. And it's not that's not the way that game works. Well, all these I mean, this month actually has been an interesting thing for me. Like it's it's proven itself out time and again that when I'm when I write blog posts, I just kind of think of it as like planting seeds and some of them just sprout like immediately and they take off and you're like, awesome. And then others you're like, yeah, nothing. Just sitting there, disappeared back into my archives and then I, I did a post like a year and a half ago about uh, composite decking. I, I don't like composite decking. It's a pain in the butt and it burns my feet when I walk on it. So I posted on some of the issues that they have, the problems of composite decking, whatever. Year and a half ago, it it like I was like, well, that was a waste of time. That just totally bombed. For the last month, it's been the most popular post that Google has served up on my blog. And I'm like, <laughs> what? It just it just took a while. I don't know if it, what happened, but yeah. you know, I was like, you never know when that stuff sprouts. And I'll have different stuff that's been out there for years, just go dormant and then start sprouting again. And you know, sometimes it's because one person sh uh, shares it that has some influence, and a few other people see it, and it's a social media, you know, a little bit of a virality. But a lot of times, it's just when I'm seeing this, it's not like, wow, I had a big hit that day. It's just every day that thing beats every other post on my blog for the last month, and I'm like. Okay, cool. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm trying to put out as many seeds and they'll grow in different seasons because I definitely have a lot of seasonality uh, on mine because of projects mm -hmm. that you're going to take on. People are not working on the outside of their house. They're not painting up north in the winter. Painting no. posts die in the winter, but they're really good in the summer. So you just have to know that when you put that stuff out there, treat it like seeds. It will grow if it's good. It yeah. just might take months or years before it comes to life. It's for yeah, sure, for sure, the long tent pole content, right? The the tent pole content concept of, uh, you know, if you looked at a graph of the traffic, that it would look like a tent pole because you know that like anything around holidays, Christmas, Halloween, like you know, there's gonna be a ton of search two weeks beforehand mm. uh, for project ideas, costume ideas, whatever. 
uh, you know, bad Christmas sweater ideas. Like that's probably a massive search term, but you know, <laughs> the right. beginning of December, well, guess what? January one, uh, that goes to zero. <laughs> so, so right. like, you know, having that spread out. So I'm sure on the back end of it, you probably have some, uh, some, some winterizing projects and blogs yeah. and stuff that go up as the painting goes down. So that's all part of it. It's like, what's your portfolio and how do you spread that out? It's, it's just, just a really good thing. And I'm, I'm glad you shared uh, those few people will have links down to you that people can really explore because there is uh, just a ton of that. And I, I love hearing how you have this full-time business, 24, I said 19 earlier, I was getting confused with the 19,000, 24 employees, 19,000 square foot warehouse. But at the same time, you're running like a blog, like you're just in the right. trenches running this blog and, and, and starting to grow that too. Uh, I just I just think that it speaks to the value there because it's a completely different thing. And it is something that is, uh, you know, in the long term, when you decide to, to walk away or or hang up your your putty cleats or whatever you got there, and, and <laughs> like you're going to be done and, and, you know, you sell the business, but the blog is still going to be going. And like you said, it's evergreen and it'll be out there. Uh, even if you don't do another job ever, it's always going to be there. So uh, I love that takeaway. But uh, as we wrap up here, Scott, just wanted to get some advice from you. We always love to have our guests share some advice. You know, what would you like to share with our audience? Uh, something you wish you had known or something you've just really learned along the way? Um, probably, I mean, the, I feel like the, the biggest thing that you can do to like push your business forward, everything is read. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, you're consuming some content or watching how other people are doing things, but reading books has been it, a huge thing for me to learn how to do this, both in my, like the specific hands-on trade of like, how do I fix that? How do I work on that? But then on like leadership, on business, on finance, on all these dealing with people on managing, I was like, you know, um, I quoted him earlier, but Dave Ramsey said, you're going to be the same person you are today in five years, except for the people you meet and the books you read. And I really believe that. So I just, the more you can consume, the more information you take in, it gives you a better basis to just explode in the future. Love that. Love that because, uh, you know, we, and we talk about Audible all the time and, and that's something oh, John yeah. got yeah. me onto a couple of years ago. And some of those books have just been so great. Uh, and, and, you know, blog posts too, like those three guys, Neil Patel and Michael Hyatt and Pat Flynn, like not just books, right? It's not just reading books, but, uh, you know, now reading our blog articles and listening to podcasts and those things, like that's kind of the digital age of, of learning. Uh, mm-hmm. Or, you know, the 25 book, 25 page book on, uh, you know, old houses. I think that's a, a great place to start. One of my favorites. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting it for my coffee table. I don't know about you, Brad. I mean, I've got plenty of coffee tables these They're days. They're going to make a coffee table out of them. Yeah. I'll send you guys a copy. We'll see. Hardback. <laughs> hard, hard or hard back. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put some cardboard on the back, or I'll just put, put some plywood there. It'll be dissolved. Uh, so if you could just silicone caulk it, clear caulk is, is my choice. Absolutely. So, yeah. I'll sign yours with clear silicone. <laughs> awesome, man. Sky, it's been a, a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, tons of uh, juicy nuggets. Uh, I know our listeners are going to be pulling from the show. So thank you so much for sharing your experience and everything with the with the Made for Profit tribe. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Absolutely. Dude, I love Scott's mindset and how he approaches business. Like, I, <laughs> I just like listen to that. And it's just like I want to go out and just like rip through all my processes and like become a student of the business game as much as he is, because like I thought I was a student of the business game and I'm just like, I, I hear him and I'm like, I, I've got work to oh, do. I know, man. I he, do he's <laughs> on a completely other level. I mean, dude, was an absolute wealth of knowledge. Um, you could tell he puts 
the time in to anything that he puts his hands on, which is very admirable and impressive. Um, what a great show. Um, his his talk at work, WorkbenchCon absolutely opened up my eyes um, to a whole new world and and yeah. just hashtag SEO. Aladdin. Uh, <clears throat> hashtag S- Aladdin. SEO. <laughs> you know, the, the guy is he's 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 fantastic. Uh, what a what a good conversation! I am yeah, and that's up. his side hustle. Yeah, and that's the side hustle that he's crushing. Not to mention his twenty four employees and nineteen thousand square feet. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear more about Scott and uh, and see what he's doing over there on his blog and his main business, you can go to madeforprofit.com forward slash episode ninety eight. We'll have links to his website, Instagram, YouTube channel, and all things Scott Seidler. Yes, and if you'd like to dive into an even deeper conversation with not maybe 19,000 of anything, but a couple thousand <laughs> of the people over on the MFP uh, tribe. You can head on over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash made for profit tribe. Killer conversation always happening over there. Tons of wealth and tons of knowledge. Absolutely. So we appreciate it, guys. Uh, again, if you've not done it, we we would love a five star review over on iTunes yes. if you think we deserve it. And uh, if you don't, then just send us a mean DM and we'll leave it at that. All right, we're going to hit the after show, and we will catch you guys next time. Peace. Later.